That is it for announcements. Now, we are in the series entitled Spiritual Warfare, The Battle for Your Mind and Soul. And for the last two Sundays, Glenn has walked us through looking at who or what. Who can remember? I can see, you know, we have now worship, we're, we enjoyed the music, worshiping God, but now we're like, okay, I can finally sit, I can just do nothing and just, no, 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 let's participate, eh? let's wake up a bit. Who can remember the last two sermons that Glenn preached on? Who, who was that mainly focused on? The devil, okay. So anyone who's tuning in online, if you're taking this out of context, we are not about him, we're not about the devil, we're about Jesus, but the sermon series is about Yes, first and foremost, looking at the strategy of the devil and how he goes about in his tactics to deceive us. Because he is the orchestrator of spiritual warfare. He is the one at which not only believers, but unbelievers, unknowingly, unbelievers are actually at war with Satan. Because Satan's war is not just against God's people, but it is against who? The image bearers of God. Would you agree to that? We see that play out from the start of creation. Satan's battle is, or strategy is to deceive the image bearers of God. And so Paul talks about it that even unbelievers are deceived in this current state where their spirits have not been born again. Their eyes are blinded by who? The ruler of this world. Otherwise known as the devil, Satan. And so I'm going to put up there, I'll just step out of the way so that we can see it. Glenn had pointed out that, and we're using this from, it's, it's not his idea originally. John Mark Comer, out of his book, Live No Lies, that's a, a, a book that's supplementing the series. But it's actually an idea that came out of the early church fathers. And the, in the earliest writings, we can see even Paul talk about this, that spiritual warfare entails three aspects. It's first and foremost the devil whose strategy is to isolate us. So he wants to get you outside of the community of being in, in relationship with God. But he not only wants to do that, he wants to get you away from the community of believers. He wants to get you away from this. He wants to get you away from your spouse. He wants you to get you be away from your children so that you can forget your responsibilities and those who are around you. He wants to isolate you. And then he wants to implant ideas, deceptive ideas in your mind. And those ideas then play into the flesh. That's what we're going to look at today. It plays into the disordered desires of our sinful nature. That is what the flesh is referring to. Disordered desires. Which we feel comfortable with because, lastly, the world normalizes it. It's the status quo. That is what we're submitting and that's our main premise that we're working from. That This is how Satan operates. It's been like that from the start of creation, and it's still carrying on. And I'm going to repeat this again. It's an attack keeping many people 
who are the image bearers of God. It keeps them out of relationship with God. But then it's an attack, an accusation, and a strategy to keep children of God who have placed their trust, placed their faith in Jesus, but to keep them in a place of where they actually are not living in the freedom Jesus has for them. You might ask, okay, but Rudy, how does this play out practically? Well, I thought about this a little bit this week. And, and it's basically around three questions of who God is, who we are, and what is the good life that Satan deceives us. And I believe it, it looks like this. For the unbeliever, to the question of who is God, the answer by Satan is there is no God. And even if there was, he cannot be trusted. He's not good. Who are you? Or we? You're a mere accident. You are the product of natural selection. Spontaneous generation out of nothing. Highly evolved animal. And what is the good life? According to Satan, for the unbeliever, is the good life is you can do whatever you want. I believe for the Christian, the answers are very similar, but it's more in the line of accusations. To the question of who God is, the idea is then pitched or the lie is then given to us that God is angry with us. He's not satisfied with what you're doing, Christian. He's disappointed in you. Plus, he's holding out on you. And who you are then is then pitched to you that you're still a sinner. You're, you're, you're not going to make it out and you're not going to kick the habits that you've been wanting to see victory over. You're just a sinner. And the good life that Satan then pitches to us as Christians is this. Try harder. Work harder. That will appease God. And then, maybe He will then give you what you want. That is how I believe it plays out in the unbeliever's life as well as in the believer's life. But for the believer, if you're a Christian, it's a very dangerous position to be in because what happens is the following, and I can testify to this, it happened in my own life, and in the last couple of years, through the pandemic, I started seeing a pattern develop again, where a stronghold is established in my mind and in my life. Do you know what a stronghold is? A stronghold, by definition, is a fortified place dominated by a particular group or an individual. A fortified place Dominated by a particular group or an individual. And so what happens with a stronghold in your mind is that when you fall into a specific pattern, a sinful pattern, a habitual sin that you keep on repeating and you cannot, it's, you get stuck in a rut. It's called addiction. A neuro pathway is formed in your mind that you can't get out of because every time 
the dopamine kicks in. That every time you commit that act, you get the rush, you get the pleasure, you get the satisfaction from it. And it's very hard to renew that pattern of the mind. I think scientists, psychologists say that it takes approximately 30 to 40 days for that habit to be broken. But it needs to happen then in a new pattern, a new practice, a new discipline that substitutes and takes that over and rectifies it. And that to me is the description of a stronghold. Satan, for the Christian, can sometimes, through these deceptive ideas and his main strategy, create a stronghold that you feel like you can't get out of. And he has got power over us because he deceives us through fear and the lie. Where in actual fact, Jesus has already set you free. He has opened the gates. The gate is open, but you're choosing to stay inside of the cell to say, hold on, I'm, I'm, I'm choosing to stay in this place. I'm choosing to not open the gate while it's been unlocked. And that is the spiritual warfare that's going on in our lives. So today, hey, this is good news. Today we're going to look at a passage to which I'm only going to drive home one point. Sister, if you could throw it on there. Yes, there we go. You have been set free to love and be loved. You have been set free to love and be loved. And for this, we are going to turn to our main scripture for today, which is from Galatians 5. Galatians chapter 5. Verses 13 to 17. If you would like to turn there, if you have your Bibles with you. And as you turn there, I'm just going to pray for us. Father, we thank you for your mercy upon us as your children. We thank you. You have brought us into an open space and a relationship with you through Jesus. But we come and ask now, Lord, by your spirit, come and show us your truth through your word. And come and sanctify us by your truth this morning. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 to 17. The Apostle Paul writes to the church in Galatia. It is an area which is now modern-day Turkey. And he says to them, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out. That you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. 
For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Galatians chapters 1 to 4, Paul is writing to various churches, little groups of churches that are gathering in homes, but as a whole, the church in Galatia. And the focus of the book of Galatians is to correct teachings that are infiltrating the church. A group called the Judaizers, those who are Jews and and very religious in their way, and apparently also perhaps have faith in Jesus, have infiltrated their ranks and they are imploring them that, hey, listen, it's not just Jesus that you need. It's not just faith in Jesus. You need to add some other things that are part of the Jewish tradition and the faith. And the biggest thing is, is they are telling the men, you need to be circumcised. And then you can read on in the other chapters, it is clear that they are also then imploring them, not just to do that, but to adhere to festivals and days and etc., etc. They got to keep the Sabbath in this way. And, and there are a list of festivals that are part of the commands of God given to Israel. And then, in those chapters, Paul is referring to the flesh. He says that it's works that they are doing in the flesh that they are then boasting in and they are relying on. But then he shifts his attention here in chapter 5 and 6 then to use it a a little bit differently. But I quickly wanted to stop there and just make this clear. And this is what John Mark Comer also um, places emphasis on in his book is that flesh, in the Greek, the word is sarks, and it can be used in various ways. The first way that it can be used is physically the flesh, body. In John 1.14, we see this. It says there, and the word became flesh, talking about Jesus being the, the word, and that's the same word, sarks. And he dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That is the first way. So it's physically the body. Jesus became flesh. Second way the flesh can be used is with regards to the aspects of culture, ethnicity, religious practice, traditions, education, qualifications. We see an example of this in Philippians 3. Verses 3 to 6, where Paul says the following, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And then he lists a whole bunch of things that he could put confidence into that would be regarded as the flesh. He lists circumcision, being of the people of Israel, so nationality, a Hebrew, ethnicity, Benjamin, that tribe, that's where he's from. His tribalism, being a Pharisee, his religious practice. All of those things can be flesh. And, and what's really tricky about that one is, or both of them, 
is they are good. It's not, it's not bad, outrightly, but they, they can be good things. But then the third way in which Paul talks about flesh and, and how he uses it here in Galatians 5 is, it is the sinful nature. It is that part of our hum- humanity that is bent on evil. It is a predisposition we have to do contrary to what is good to do and think about things that are contrary to what God's standard is. And it's the sinful nature. Romans 7 verse 5 says, For while we were living in the flesh, and then Paul adds, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. So it's clear that flesh in that regard means sinful passions. So when we read verse 13 again of our main text, we see this. That Paul says in verse 13, You were called to freedom, brothers. Do not use that freedom or your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. So this third meaning of flesh is what he is referring to. It is this disordered desires of the heart. Sinful passions. So what Paul is saying, in other words, is do not use this freedom that you have received now to be set free from the law of God. In other words, trying to attain righteousness and being justified by works of the law, by doing good things. That's giving you freedom now. You've been set free from that because Jesus did that. He fulfilled the whole law. He was sinless. Don't use it so that you can satisfy, gratify these desires of the flesh, these things that are by nature within you. You have died to those things. Now, It's a picture that he shares again of a consequence of this is is you put again yourself under a yoke of slavery when you do that. He tells the Galatian church, he says, listen, if you go and do this, if you try and adhere to the law, you are circumcised, you try and keep the Sabbaths and you try like if you just do one of those things, you're placing yourself under the whole law. You have to keep everything, which is impossible. And if you try and do that, What it does is it produces from within you sinful nature and the power through that, the sinful desires to be more at play in your work, in your life. And you put yourself under a yoke of slavery. And this picture is of oxen that a a yoke is placed on them and they are pulling or plowing through the field. And it's hard. It's actually too hard. It's impossible. And that is what Paul says. He says, that is what will happen. Now, I thought about this picture. And what came to mind for me is, if you look at someone who has maybe been in prison for a very long time. They were held captive. And someone who came to mind for me, if you're not familiar with the history of South Africa, is Nelson Mandela. I have a picture up there for for you. It's not the the best picture of him. That's in his old days. But Nelson Mandela in 1962 
in South Africa's history was caught and trialed for basically insurrection um, to overthrow the government. And together with the African National Congress, they were sabotaging power stations and infrastructure in South Africa, and even to the extent that it included lots of violence, planting of, of bombs in restaurants. And in the end, he was sent to jail for, for life. But then, of course, there were more and more uprisings in South Africa during the 70s and 80s, up to the point uh, that the South African regime, the apartheid regime, which was an oppressive regime, a, ra a racist regime, and under lots of international pressure through sanctions, they released Nelson Mandela in the year of 1990. And it was on TV, and I'm pretty sure it was shown worldwide. Many of you might not have been born by that stage yet. How many of you are there? Okay, all of you are Okay, Jeff, all right, Jeff, you need to go look at YouTube at this footage, okay? That's very important. Okay, so Nelson Mandela is released, and he's walking out of the prison where he was held, and he's walking with his wife and his family, and there is just cheers of jubilation because this man, for 28 years, was held in captivity on Robben Island, which is very similar to Alcatraz, off of the coast of South Africa, and he's a free man. But if you also read his book, he's a changed man. Something changed within him in prison. For he knew that he struggled to set his people free and to liberate them from the oppressive government of South Africa was not going to happen through what they were trying to do. Through sabotage. But in the end... It had to happen through democracy. And so in 1994, the first democratic election was held in South Africa, and he was elected as the first black president of South Africa. Now, I was thinking about that, and I thought, how crazy would it have been for Nelson Mandela if he walked out there and within the first week gathered together with his members of the African National Congress, and they planned and executed a military move to take over South Africa, to overthrow the government, but then just to be caught again and put in prison. That would be really, really silly, ludicrous. The world would have looked at that and said, what on earth was this? What were they thinking for 28 years? But that is not what happened, right? He was set free. He didn't go back to the old ways in which they thought they were going to liberate their people. Believe me, there was a lot of pressure. There was a lot of fear. Many people fled South Africa thinking this was going to be a bloodbath. Did blood flow? Yes, there were skirmishes. But overall, it was a miraculous transition into a new government. People were expecting war. People from the African National Congress wanted to see blood flow. They wanted to take vengeance for all of these years that they were oppressed. But Nelson Mandela said, no, 
this is not the way forward for South Africa. I share that as a picture for what our life, what our lives in Christ Jesus is. To be set free. Because each and every one of us need to understand this. Before you come to Jesus Christ, Jesus puts it this way. And, and Glenn looked at that in the first two sermons. We are all actually children of the devil. It's hard to admit. But it's the truth. If your spirit is not awake in Christ, there's no middle road. You're not in a middle kingdom. You're the, in the kingdom of darkness before Christ. And if you're in the kingdom of darkness, you are a child of Satan, Jesus says to the Pharisees. We don't like to hear that because we label someone as a Satanist when they outrightly practice the occult, where they worship Satan. But we think in our day and age that, okay, I can find a middle way. I'm not going to live for Jesus. I'm not outrightly going for Satan. I'm just going to go into my recreation. I'm going to go and, and, and do whatever I want. But guess what? That's the deception of Satan. You're actually just in his kingdom. And so Jesus is telling us, listen, don't go back to that. Why do you want to go back to that? It's ludicrous. Listen to Paul in, in Romans 6, 20, verses 20 uh, to 23. He says, for when you were slaves of sin, that's what we all were. Before you came to faith in Jesus, you were a slave to sin. You were free in regard to righteousness. I'll explain that just now. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? What was the good things that you were getting from it? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification. In other words, overcoming those strongholds, overcoming that sin that you just seem to not be able to get over. And have victory over. And the final prize is eternal life. Eternity. Immortality. With Jesus Christ. Because you see. What Paul says there. In verse 21. Or sorry. Verse 20. He says. You were slaves of sin. And you were free in regard to righteousness. There is a kind of freedom that comes with sin. There's a lot of pleasure associated with sin because it's addictive. It releases dopamine. There is freedom that comes, but it's freedom that is away from righteousness. You've, you've got a freedom that is actually not freedom in the light of what Christ has done for you on the cross. It is a freedom that actually enslaves you. The freedom that enslaves. Because you see, that is the kind of freedom that the world is. And I'm not going to get into the world, but Satan through the world. But Satan pitches to unbelievers and believers. Go for freedom. And the freedom that you're looking for is to do whatever you want to do. Another way that I want to illustrate this point is in it. It was really sad when I, I read this story, and I'm going to share this uh, interview from a, a well-known actor who 
His story was published in GQ magazine in October, I believe, of 2021. The actor is Will Smith. All of you know who Will Smith is. Fresh Prince of Ballet, take you back to the late 80s, 90s. Like, what a show. Fantastic, eh? So funny. I, I, I just watched that whole thing, I think, 10 years ago on Netflix. Binged on it. And then Will Smith became like one of the biggest stars in Hollywood between 97 and 2008. And he's still a, quite a big star, right? With movies such as Independence Day, lots of alien movies, Independence Day, Men in Black, one, two, three, I think there was a fourth one, I, Robot, Pursuit of Happiness. Well, Will Smith had an interview with GQ magazine last year, and then he revealed in this candid interview, he's 53 years old now, that He and his wife, Jada Pinkett Smith, now have an open marriage, something they term an open marriage. Now, he didn't reveal much about his sexual experiences outside of marriage, but he admitted that he felt guilt about considering infidelity in the early stage of their relationship due to listen to this. And this is why I bring this up, because he refers to this. He says he felt guilt because of his Christian upbringing. But here's the answer for Will Smith of what it means to break free. He detailed his experience of working with an intimacy coach. He worked with an intimacy coach, someone else from the outside who helped him process the thoughts of having a harem of girlfriends despite being married. Now listen to Smith saying this. He says, what the coach was doing was essentially cleaning out my mind. Letting it know it was okay to be me. And be who I was. It was okay to think, Halle, and he's referring to Halle Berry, is fine. It doesn't make me a bad person that I'm married and I think Halle is beautiful. Whereas in my mind, in my Christian upbringing, even my thoughts were sins. That was really the process the coach worked me through to let me realize that my thoughts were not sins. And even, listen to this, even acting on an impure thought didn't make me a scumbag. He actually uses another description I wasn't able to read there. In other parts of the interview, he adds, we have given each other, this is now him and his wife. Now listen very carefully to these words. Trust and freedom. With a belief that everybody has to find their own way. And marriage for us can't be a prison. And I don't suggest our road for anybody. But the experiences that the freedoms that we've given one another and the unconditional support to me is the highest definition of love. Now you might ask, really, why on earth are you sharing that? I'm not sharing it as a critique on culture, but I feel there is something to be spoken into since he brought in Christianity. In other words, his upbringing. This is someone who, at one stage perhaps, said that they were a Christian. 
And of course, they have a very big influence in the culture. But I feel like it's important to look at this example to say how this plays into this idea of freedom. That true freedom comes when you let your inhibitions go. Be whoever you want to be. Do what you want. You be you. Just do it. Just follow your truth. And this is exactly how Satan works. Because if, if you go and follow his reasoning, it follows something like this. We can see it flows that Will Smith says his Christian upbringing gave him the framework for marriage. Being monogamous and with the opposite sex. That's good, right? Yes. Yes and amen. But then he says that led him to experience marriage as a prison. And what flows from that, he says, is, is it led him to believe or them to the belief that they can find their own way outside of God's scope of marriage to be liberated from this prison. And that the freedom then came when they allowed themselves and each other to pursue their own way through extramarital relationships. And now they say that is true freedom and love. Now, brothers and sisters, I'm going to submit to you that in actual fact, what he is describing there plays into a disordered desire of the flesh to do whatever you want. But in actual fact, it is slavery. Do you know why? Because of FOMO. Will Smith and his wife will never be satisfied because they will always have the fear of missing out. Because they have decided that they have freedom to do whatever they want. There's no framework now for marriage, but they still call it marriage so that they can soften the blow. Because if they actually got divorced as a, a result of infidelity, then it will be classified as adultery. But now they have found a, a, a a way to still kind of like, we're still married, but this is submitted as this is true freedom. But they will never be satisfied because they will always be wondering, well, what if, what if I'm with this person? And what, if, what, what about that person? And Will Smith is banking on quite a lot because he's 53 now. In 10 years, he'll be 63. And then 73, Lord willing, like he's got a lot of, I don't know, steroids and pumping to do with his uh, irons so that he's in shape and that he's got those options. And he's trusting that his bank balance is going to stay very high so that he can apparently gather. But he is assuming a lot. And he will never be satisfied. He will always be running. His wife will always be running thinking, um, am I missing out on something else? And they will be slaves to that cycle. And if we're honest, we do the same. Not necessarily to this extent, but we do it with our jobs. We do it with our friendships. And we do it with church. We do it with our church. We do it with our community of believers. We get stuck in a cycle of where we are with a group of people and when we join them after we have faith in Jesus, 
We are so let down and disappointed. This is not what I was thinking. This is not the perception I had when I came here for the first two times when the coffee shop was open and there were these aromas of coffee and, and the music was so great. By the third or the fourth Sunday, there was only one guy in worship. The experience was terrible. I'm going to go check out the other church. Or in your work experience, the first month is chaos. The first year, the second year, it's not, it's not getting better. There, there's other opportunities. There's so much work in BC. You can do whatever you want. Find what you love. Do what you love. Isn't that the, what's pitched to us? Isn't that what I believe? Rudy, I believe it. Go do what you love, man. Then it won't be work to you. It's enslavement. And you know what it's closely connected to is commitment. We are so scared to go and put that commitment in our calendars. Hey, hey, listen, can I schedule you for this coming Sunday to be on keys? Yeah, um, pencil me in. Uh, I just got to go and check if this lines up with, you know, these and these commitments. I'm going to go. Uh, I'm planning a trip to the Yukon. Fill in the blank. And it should not be that way, especially amongst God's people. I want to point us to what Jesus says is the ultimate sacrifice and act of love. Because they make a, a real big claim there. What they are doing, Will Smith and his wife, they believe they've got this freedom and unconditional support. And this is... The ultimate definition of love for them. Listen to Jesus. John 15 verse 13. Jesus says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down their life for his friends. Lay down your life. You don't necessarily have to physically go and die, but lay down your desires, your wants, your dreams. That is what true freedom is. And that is what happens in a marriage. You have to die to self. And that is what Jesus did for his church and for the world. He died in order that we might be alive in him. That's the greatest act of love. That's the greatest freedom that comes through the power of the Holy Spirit. When we come to the realization that as Paul points out there, love is the answer. And through serving one another, that is why we have freedom. It's not to gratify your desires and what you want. Paul says it there. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. something to think about if we compare those two definitions of what freedom and love is or what true love is finally I'm going to draw us to a close here looking at that text again verses 16 to 17 Paul says this and this is the key 
to walk in the freedom of Christ. He says, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to one another to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. You see, in the end, Satan's strategy is he's going to lie to you. He's going to pitch that lie to you the whole time. Did God really say he's holding out on you? FOMO, you are missing out. You can be God. You can decide what you want to do. He wants to stop you from actually living in true freedom. He wants to keep you from true freedom that comes through community with God first and with His people. And as long as you are coming to church, He's also happy for as long as you just come and sit here. He's happy if you just go and join in with a community of believers in an MCG and you just sit there. He's pretty satisfied to keep the church also being passive. That's a really good strategy for him too. He loves that. Like you're stuck in your religious box. Can't move. It reminded me of this. In a book by C.S. Lewis called The Screwtape Letters. I'm not sure how many of you have read that. But in this book, C.S. Lewis has two main characters. There is, it's, it's in the spiritual realm. It's the demonic world. And there's an uncle an uncle demon who's called Screwtape, and then his nephew, Wormwood. And Wormwood has been given the assignment to now tempt and look after a new person, a new convert, who has turned to Jesus. But he needs to now get this guy back into sin and into hell. And Screwtape writes to his nephew regarding freedom. Now listen to what he says. Now I also want to say that C.S. Lewis prefaces this book by saying, we've got to understand, Satan is a liar. So not everything that you read what Screwtape, these demons in the discussion, not everything that they say, you can take at face value because they are lying. So their theology is not always correct, right? But this is the, the challenge of this book. It challenges your theology. What are these demons talking about? What are they saying? Is this correct or not? But listen to this. Screwtape writes to Wormwood and he says, Work hard then at the disappointment or anticlimax which is certainly coming to the patient during his first few weeks as a churchman. In other words, when he joins a community of believers like us. The enemy, he is referring to God, allows this disappointment to occur on the threshold of every human endeavor. It occurs when the boy who has been enchanted in the nursery by stories from the Odyssey, buckles down to really learning Greek. So in other words, when they realize, listen, this is really hard. It occurs when lovers have got married and begin the real task of learning to live together. In every department of life, it marks the transition from dreaming aspiration to laborious doing. The enemy takes this risk because he has a curious fantasy of making all these disgusting little human vermin into what he calls free lovers and servants. Sons is the word he uses. With his 
inveterate love of degrading the whole spiritual world by unnatural liaisons with the two-legged animals. Desiring freedom, he therefore refuses to carry them by their mere affections and habits to any of the goals which he sets before them. He leaves them to do it on their own. Listen to this carefully as I close with this from C.S. Lewis. He leaves them to do it on their own and there lies the opportunity. But also remember, there lies our danger. If once they get through this initial dryness successfully, they become much less dependent on emotion and therefore much harder to tempt. And I read that and I thought, wow, that is fascinating. But you know what struck me? Is I believe Screwtape is correct, but it gets it wrong. We sang a song this morning that confirms this. You go before me. You are beside me. You were behind me. You are with me. Screwtape gets it wrong in the fact that the Holy Spirit is poured into our hearts. We are not alone. You are not alone as a Christian in this battle, in this world, in this life, to follow Jesus. An unbeliever, if you are sitting and you have maybe been in church your whole life, but you have never been born again, you know that you know, you have never had a position in your life where you were able to look back and your eyes are open to see, wow, I need forgiveness for my sin. If you've never had that where you then turned 180 degrees in repentance to Jesus Christ, then that is what Jesus is calling you for today. That freedom that comes through His Spirit that's in you. John Mark Comer explains it in this way, finally, in his book. He says, it's about your deepest desires. He says, our strongest desires are not actually our deepest desires. What I mean is this. In the moment of temptation, the raging fire of desire that is your flesh, the desire to make a condescending comment about your co-worker, buy another pair of shoes you don't need, overeat, overdrink, lust, ignore God, watch Netflix instead of reading your Bible, feels overwhelming and almost irresistible. But those desires are not actually your deepest desires your truest desires of your heart. They don't come from the bedrock layer of your soul. He says this, Come to quiet before God. Take a few deep breaths. Let the deepest desires of your heart come to the surface of your heart. What is it you want? What do you really want? My guess is, if you go deep enough, you ache for God Himself. To live in His love. To yield to His gentle peace. To let your body become a place where His will is done. On earth as it is in heaven. That is the gift of the Holy Spirit in you. Family, let us experience that today. Let us experience that truth. That promise. It is available for us. I'm going to invite the, the worship band to come and just lead us in one last song. And I'm going to invite you to pray with me. 
And let us just, as they start, maybe again there, Jolene, a little bit on the piano, as they start playing, before they start singing, let us just give an opportunity to do what that author says there. Let us be quiet before the Lord. And allow the Holy Spirit to minister to you. Allow Him to speak into your life and bring to remembrance maybe those sins, those habits that you have downplayed and you've thought, this is not that harmful. This is, this is okay. You know what? This is, this is giving me freedom. But maybe it's actually just leading to enslavement. And let Him just come and reveal it to you and allow Him to set you free from it. Bring it before Him and confess it. And I want to invite you to be as bold to confess that to someone else, a fellow believer, to be in accountability, to find someone that you can trust, someone, a brother or a sister in your community group. That's why community group is so important. So that you can walk in the freedom together with your family. Let us do that. Let us bow our heads. I'll pray for us and then we'll just spend some time in listening. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your truth. We thank you that you have set us free from the power of sin. You have set us free from the law. But Lord, you have called us into freedom to love and be loved. To come to know you. And so I just ask, Holy Spirit, come and minister. Come and do what only you can do. Come and speak into the lives of all of us. We desperately need you, Lord.